First John chapter 2. We're kind of in the middle of the chapter. We're going to take two parts of it that I think go together this morning. Verses 12 through 14 and 15 through 17. They, by amazing coincidence, were just the words you heard during our time of confession. I don't know how that happened, but it's just sort of the way it worked out. But let's read them again now. This is the word of God. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who was from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for the mighty fortress that is your word and that is your son. Thank you that he he is the shepherd that defends us. He is our shield. Thank you for your word, the uh, proclamation that in Christ the victory is already won. Thank you for the shield of faith. Thank you for the breastplate of Christ's righteousness and the belt of truth. Thank you for the shoes of the gospel that we take out into the world when we go from here. Thank you for the helmet of salvation that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ. I pray that you would help us this morning. We need to hear the gospel. We need to remember what your word says. We need the desire to do what it says. So I pray that you would give us the will and the strength to work out our salvation in and through this text. In Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. Why would you want to give up something you cannot lose to keep, to get something that you cannot keep? Why would you want to give up something that you cannot lose to get something that you cannot keep? That doesn't seem like good relational advice, does it? Give up a relationship that will never go away for a relationship that you can't hold on to forever. It's also bad investment advice, right? Let's try to gain something that's going to go away in the world and for it, give up some investment and inheritance that will never go away. It's not good for life goals. I'm going to give my life to things that will not last and in return, I'm going to lose the only thing that lasts forever. Why would you want to give up something that you cannot lose for something that you cannot keep? That doesn't seem to make sense in the real world of everyday life to trade eternal life for anything else, right? The last sentence of our text is really pointed. If you look at it again, verse 17, we're going to start at the end. Look at the end of the text. The world is passing away along with its desires. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. Are you going to trade something you cannot lose for all that stuff that you cannot keep? Well, if you've tried that, and I'll bet you have, you're not alone, Right? The wisest man who ever lived tried that too. 
King Solomon in Ecclesiastes spent a lot of his life in a research program trying to find life that matters and life that lasts and everything that is Hevel. Remember Hevel? I don't have my spray bottle, so I just have to pretend. Right? It's mist. It's vapor. You can see it, you can perceive it, but you can't grab it, you can't do anything with it, and it goes away quickly. That's what Solomon did in the book of Ecclesiastes. And we've said before that 1 John is a book that answers Ecclesiastes. What does it mean to fear God and keep his commandments instead of giving yourself to Hevel? 1 John deals with that over and over again. And in this text, Hevel is rearing its ugly head again. Right, that mist, that vapor, that word that Solomon tries to find so much significance and permanence in life when he seeks out, maybe if I just get smarter and get wisdom, maybe if I just work harder and do better, maybe if I just get a lot of money or a lot of power or as much pleasure as I can get my hands on or the most prestige that anyone has. That's what he spends the book of Ecclesiastes running after. And I think it raises a question. It raised a question in our growth group when we studied the book. And it's, is Solomon actually saved? Is he saved? Does he know Yahweh as he spends his life giving himself to all of these things that do not matter and do not last? Our text in 1 John today is setting two things right next to each other to make us ask this kind of question. Can someone spend their life The video, right, we've talked about that before, not just a snapshot. The video of their life, loving the world and the things in the world, and actually have faith so that their sins are actually forgiven. That they know God and that they overcome the evil one. Can the love for God and love for neighbor, that was our last passage, verses 7 through 11, right, it's right before our passage, and the love of the world which is the end of our passage, can those two things abide in the same person at the same time? Is that possible? Was Solomon saved? Well, I think the end of Ecclesiastes answers the question where he finally works his way through all of the hevel of everything he's tried in the world that evaporated on him. And he says, I finally figured it out, though it took me a long time. The whole duty of man Fear God and keep his commandments. And I think as Christians who live in an America where the love of the world and the love of the stuff or the things that are in the world, if there's anything that's the driving force of America, that would be it. This is a text where we, the church, need to be paying careful attention if we're going to be faithful to the end. Remember, that's why First John and all of the general epistles, I think, are written. They're written so the church can persevere through sin and suffering and serpents, false teachers, there next week. To finish the race of faith, the Hebrew says, put your eyes on Jesus, keep running. So that's why John is writing. That's why he's 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 writing. You need to hear it over and over and over because it's very important and it's really hard. Probably something struck you as strange in the text we just read together. In your Bible, I would guess those words are written in a different kind of lining. They are in mine, right? Did it strike you as odd that we read at the beginning of our text, verses 12 through 14, a poem? That's supposed to get your attention. You're supposed to say, oh, 
why am I suddenly in a poem now? That's weird. I thought this was a letter. So we need to slow down. We need to look at the poem. And we need to see how does this relate to the text that's before it and the text that's after it? How does this help us make disciples in a culture and a country that is increasingly hostile to us? Where evil is becoming not just commendable, it's becoming legalized by your legislature. And we're going to make wickedness the rule of the day in Minnesota. So how is the church going to love neighbor and not love the world? Right right before and right after. It's the poem in the middle. Let's take a close look at it. You can use some of the same skills in looking at the structure of this poem that we use in our summer psalms. Every summer we go through psalms here. Remember, one of the first questions we ask of a poem is, how many parts? How many parts? If you can get the structure of the poem, you're well on your way to understanding it. How many parts to this poem? Fortunately, this one's easier than most psalms. There are two, and you can see that in the repetitions. He goes through the same three Little children, fathers, young men. Little children, fathers, young men, two times. So there are two parts to the poem, three parts in each part, six lines total. And what what the other thing that repeats, right? I've said it two times now in this service. I am writing. I am writing. I am writing. And then I write, I write, I write. So the verb repeats a couple of things, and it looks like this is highlighting for us a couple of things, that what he's writing is really important because he keeps repeating it over and over again, and it makes it look like perhaps he's structuring the poem around the main point, which is this is something you need to hear and hear and hear and hear and hear. So I'm going to say it and say it and say it and say it and say it. So even the structure of the poem looks like the message of the poem, which is that this is something that needs to keep going in the life of the church, not just once, but all the time. In much of his letter, and he's changing focus of who he's talking to, I think. So Douglas O'Donnell, the book that Kevin held up, that commentary, that guy would say that he's changing his focus, and I agree with him, that in much of this letter so far, John has been challenging the confessing Christian who's a phony, who's a liar. He's been challenging the confessing Christian who says, I believe in God, but his life looks nothing like that. The video of his life or the video of her life denies what her lips say. The one who talks but does not walk. And in this section, John is changing his attention to the authentic believer. The person who really does have faith that saves by grace through Christ, but is struggling with, am I really saved? Because I'm still wrestling with sin. I'm still wanting to love the world. I have a lot of trouble walking with Jesus. Am I really saved? And this passage is changing to focus on that person more than the one who's pretending to be a Christian, but is really not. So if that's the case, and this is addressed to genuine believers in Christ, Let's look at how this poem helps us finish the race that all of 1 John has written to help us with. And so I think we want to answer three questions about the poem to kind of focus us on the message of the text. We want to answer, who is this speaking to? What does it emphasize? And how does it help? Who is it speaking to? What does it emphasize? And how does it help? So let's start with, who is this speaking to? Or in other words, who is he talking about when he says little children, or children's a different term in the first and second one 
occurrence, fathers and young men. And in the interest of time in the sermon, I'm not going to actually walk you through all of the study that I did, teasing out word studies and trying to figure out who he's talking about. I'm just going to give you the conclusion to this. And I would encourage you to do your own study. If you don't know how to do a word study, go to your growth group and learn how to do one. Do do your own study or interact with a commentary or come and talk to me afterwards. I'm happy to talk more about it. But here are my conclusions without all of the study that went into them. It looks to me like little children are children. That's a family term. And it's emphasizing every believer's real relationship with God as our Heavenly Father. So little children is is addressed to everybody in the church who has a real relationship by faith in Christ with God as their Father. Fathers is also a family term, and it's speaking more directly or focusing on those who are older and more mature in their faith and maybe older and more mature in their age as well. And young men is a term that speaks more directly to those who are younger and more energetic in their faith and maybe younger in age as well, right? The commentaries I've looked at also would support that conclusion. So that's the who. Little children addresses everybody. Fathers, the older, more mature people in the church. I think it's a general term that applies to men and women. Well, it's using fathers as like the head of household kind of idea. And young men, also applying to everyone who's, so the fathers would be the more mature, the young men would be the more energetic. So you're kind of addressing all of the church with these terms. Does that make sense? That's that's what I came to as I worked my way through this text. Little children is everyone, the fathers are the more mature, the older, and the more mature in faith. The youngers are the younger and more energetic in faith. And the poem repeats to each and to all of us, three things. And so let's now look, that's who it's talking to, so it's talking to everybody, and at least one of the lines, or at least two of the lines, actually, because you're either older or you're younger. And why don't we just divide the sanctuary and have all the old people? No, let's not do that. You can decide if you're among the older or the younger. Here's what it's saying, though. What is it emphasizing? This is our second question. I'm going to give you three W's to help you remember what it's emphasizing. And for children, it's emphasizing that children have been washed. Washed. That's the W. Because they've been forgiven of their sins. All of them. All of them in the name of Christ. Believing brings belonging to Jesus. That's what in the name of Jesus means. It means you've believed in him and you belong to him. That by faith, Jesus becomes the head of your household. And you belong to his family. And you're a part of his body. And you receive forgiveness, which we call justification, right? These are words we've been learning in Christian formation. And you receive a life that proves that you have faith. That's called sanctification. Children have been washed And I want you to notice the unusual verb here. Every verb in the poem, actually, that it's talking to, have been forgiven, have known him, it's a perfect verb. And in Greek, that's highly inflected. So you pay more attention to it. And a perfect verb is emphasizing this. It's the present result of a past series of complicated actions. So a perfect verb means there's been a whole lot of stuff that's gone on in the past that's led up to the point of now you're forgiven. And that took an incredibly complicated plan to get you to that present state of forgiveness or having known him or having overcome the evil one. Does that make sense? So it's an emphasis on looking at the past and saying, oh my goodness, look at that. This is how that all came about. You have been forgiven. Not just of one sin, not just a few of your sins, 
Not just your sins from last week. Right? All of them. To, to paraphrase Jane Austen, I say sins because there are many. And in Christ, children, and that's all believers who are in Christ, have been washed, washed of all of your sins. All of them. You have been forgiven. The W for fathers, for the more mature in the congregation, is wise. Fathers are wives because they've known the one who is from the beginning. They've known Jesus Christ. This brings personal relationship together into combination with knowledge and with understanding. They know Jesus, they've learned about him, and they know him because they relate to him personally. And it depicts, it's a, remember, this is a perfect verb, so it's a long series of complex past actions. They have a long-standing relationship with Jesus. They've gotten to know him well over a long period. Right? This is what a long-term, deep relationship looks like. When you, when you come to somebody to talk to them, you already know what they like and what they don't like. You don't have to wonder because you've gotten to know them. You already know what they'll say about something if you bring it up with them because you know their opinions about it, right? You, you, know, you know how they'll act. You know what they would do in a certain situation because you've gotten to know them really well. You have known who Jesus is. You've learned him over a long period of time. The idea being, you don't have to wonder what Jesus would do to riff off of that horrific bracelet from years ago, right? What would Jesus do? You don't have to wonder that. You just know it because you've learned him. Fathers can say, I know his character, I know his conduct, I've lived with him for years. And that kind of knowing does not happen overnight. You don't become a more mature Christian just by watching the YouTube video on how it works. Right? That's not how this works. You don't become a more mature Christian just by speed learning or getting it cloned from somebody else. The older in the congregation are wise because they've known Jesus and learned Jesus over a long period of time. And the only way that that happens is over a long period of time. Day in, day out, walking with Jesus in ordinary, everyday life. Fathers, you have known him. You're in the present state of a long series of past complicated actions. You know Jesus. And younger men, people who, they are stronger in their faith because God's word abides in them and they've overcome the evil one. This is their W. Young men, younger people who are energetic in their faith, they're warriors, They're warriors. They're holding on to the hand of God by holding on to the word of God, by holding on to the hand of the apostles. Remember, we've talked about that. If you want to hold on to God's hands, you have to hold on to the hands of the apostles through the word of God, which they've written and given us, because this is the only way that you'll know the way, the truth, and the life is what's written in this book. They've held on to the word of God. They've become warriors, and they've defeated a past series of complex actions that have led to the present state of you have defeated the evil one. You've overcome him. They're strong in the power of the word. They're warriors. So children are washed. Fathers are wise. And younger or the older, more mature people are wise. And the younger people are warriors. Three poetic descriptions of what genuine believers do and live to give assurance of salvation. Because that's how this happens. Remember, look at the structure of the poem again. How does this happen? How is it? that your sins have been forgiven, and you have known the one from the beginning, and you have overcome the evil one. 
I'm writing. I'm writing. I'm writing. I wrote, I wrote, I wrote over and over and over the repetition of the apostolic word of God so that a common life and a common cause for a common future with God and with other people exists and your joy may be complete. That's the purpose of writing the book from the prologue. And the church always needs this. And the church always will. And the more mature you get, you get, the more you need to hear the repetition of the gospel. And the more you fight, the more you need to hear the repetition of the gospel. And the more you sin, the more you need to hear the repetition of the gospel. Over and over and over. Your sins have been forgiven. That is true in Christ. You have known Jesus, the very creator of the world. The word of God incarnate, you have known him. And you have overcome the evil one. Satan has no claim on you. It is true, it is true, it is true. So stay in the race. Keep running. You see how this text impels us to be faithful to the end and keep going. It teaches courage, it teaches endurance, it teaches hope. Your sins are forgiven. Courage. You don't have anything to fear. You don't even have to fear death. We've been singing that. We're going to sing it again in the song at the end of the service. You don't need to hide from hardship. You don't need to cower and be a coward when someone comes and you encounter hostility in the world around you. And if you're living for Christ, boy, you better be encountering hostility. Otherwise, I don't know how you could possibly be living the gospel. Because you're not going to get along with some of these people around here anymore. You don't need to stay quiet. You don't need to curl up in the corner when the world tries to cancel you and to silence your Christ. What's the worst thing they can do to you? What does the Bible say? Oh, death, where is your sting? Fine, kill me. You can't hurt me. I'm in Christ. There's nothing left that you can do. We have overcome the evil one. Your sins have been forgiven. Death cannot touch you. There's nothing left to be afraid of. This poem teaches courage. This poem also teaches endurance. You have known Jesus in ordinary, everyday life. You know his character. You know his conduct. You know his faithfulness. That will be in the last song we sing after the sermon, too. You know he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. That's what he promised. You know what he's like. You don't need to doubt whether he cares about you. You don't need to wonder whether God's chesed, his faithful, fiery covenant love and devotion for his people is on you or not. If you are in Christ, God will never let you go. You are his child. You've been adopted. And that's the end of the story. Chesed grabs you forever. So keep running. You don't have to doubt that he will take care of you. He says he will. He always keeps his word. And the poem teaches hope. Man, you've overcome the evil one. The devil cannot go toe-to-toe with Jesus. How well did that work? He gave him everything he had at the cross. He tried death. Death doesn't work. When it comes to the Son of God, he came back from the dead three days later. The devil has nothing left in his arsenal. He cannot go toe-to-toe with your Lord and Savior. You have overcome the evil one. 
Death is not the end for Jesus Christ, and it is not the end for any who belong to him. Resurrection is. And all the forces of darkness are doing in the world around you right now, however black and awful it seems, all they're doing is fighting the long defeat to eventual disintegration and destruction and a life forever in hell. That's all they're doing. It's the long defeat. That's what they're fighting. The devil's defeated. Hear the poem of courage and of endurance and of hope and keep heeding it and hear it over and over and over to be assured that your Christ will not let you go and that you can finish the race of the mission he's given you of being and making disciples. Children, more mature and younger mature believers, this is what everyday life in the church looks like. And now I want you to take a step back, and I want you to look at where the poem is. Look at what's right before it. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? I've given you the same old new command. That's really hard, because most of the people I'm being called to love are you. And one of the people you're being called to love is me, which is even worse. That's a really hard command. Love your neighbor as yourself, And look at what comes right after the poem. Do not love the world, one of John's few commands, or anything in it. That's really, really hard. So what does he put in the middle of those two really hard-to-do things as a Christian? You've been forgiven. You've known your Savior. And you've overcome the evil one. And because of that, you can follow the same old new command. And you can keep the one that comes next. So now let's look at the one that comes next. Look at verses 15 through 17. This is the second half. We've said before that this, this book is a series of criteria to assess and assure the reality of Christian profession and that they kind of fall into three kinds of tests. This is the love test. What do you love? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever It's full of criteria, 1 John is, that answer the question, by this we know. I think that's the theme of the book. And on one side of the coin, on the other side of the coin, right, lots of criteria, by this we know. But that means that 1 John has almost no commands in it. Most New Testament epistles have lots of imperatives. It's the mode of command, do this, do that. 1 John only has eight, which is not very many, concentration-wise. But this is one of them. Do not love the world or the things in it. And because the book hardly ever gives a direct command to the reader, I think we want to pay attention when the finger starts to come out of the text a little bit, right? And do the, oh, do not love the world. Your sins have been forgiven. You've known Jesus Christ. You've overcome the evil one and the power of the Spirit Your faith is genuine. You're not just speaking. You're walking 
as a Christian walks, so don't love the world. And let's hone in on two specific words to make sure we understand what it's saying. And that's the word love and the word world. And we're going to start with the second one first. What does world mean here? Because world can mean all kinds of stuff in the Bible. It has a tremendously large semantic range, we would call it, or a range of meaning. It can be something very good. It can be used of God's good creation in Genesis. It can be used to something really bad, the organized system of resistance to Christ's rule and the organized system of competition for God's glory. It can be all the way from God's good creation to a world in utter rebellion against him. So what does it mean here? Because it can only mean one thing, right? A word can't mean 20 things in where it's used. It just means one thing here. And do you remember the first three rules of interpretation? We haven't reviewed those lately, so it would be good to review them. The first three rules. The first rule is context. Remember this? And the second rule sort of goes with the first one, and it's context. And then the third rule rounds out the three, and it's context. So those are your first three rules of interpretation. And if it's hard to remember the first one, it'll come back to you by the time you hit the second or the third, right? Context, context, context. What's going on here that helps us understand what world means? Here, and in John's Gospel, and in other similar contexts in the New Testament, this is a reference to the domain of darkness, the place where death reigns, and where sin is the normal way of living. That's the world. It's the realm that does not recognize Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's the godless society like Psalms 2. No more God, no more Messiah. We will take our stand and throw off his chains and fetters. So the world, if you want to put it simply, the world is opposed to God and apart from God. That's what it means here. It's the organized system of people who are opposed to God and apart from God. And more sharply in 1 John, I wanna, this is setting up a little uh, some, something for next week. More sharply in 1 John, the world is where the false teachers live. They're coming next week. So it's also the place the false teachers abide. The place where the Antichrists and the evil one himself operate. Christians don't love the world. The domain of darkness that is opposed to God and separated from him. But you probably also notice there are two objects, right? Those of you who are English majors and like grammar, there are two objects, not one. Do not love the world and do not love the things of the world. There's actually two things there. So the first one seems to be a broad statement. Don't love the domain of darkness. Don't love the society of the godless. Don't love the realm that will not recognize Christ's rule and redemption. But the second one is more specific. Don't love any of the stuff in that either. He's trying to not give you an out. Well, I don't love all of it, but I I just love that part, right? That's okay, right? And he's saying, no, that's not okay either. And so to use a, a March Madness analogy, if this helps you a little bit, it would be sort of like saying this. Don't love college basketball or any of the teams they're in, right? It's sort of, it's sort of a both and. Don't love the sport nor have a favorite team. And Duke already lost, so I no longer have a favorite team, so I'm, I'm doing fine. That's what the world means. What does love mean? Again, love can mean, and there's a broad semantic range for love, not as big as world, but it's a, a large semantic range. And remember the three rules of interpretation? Context and good job. It's hard to remember those, I know, but we'll repeat them a couple times and we'll, we'll let them settle in. 
context here is very clear. It's immediately before and after. Love your brother. Love your neighbor. Love the Father as the Father has loved you. This sets up a direct confrontation with. It sets up a direct competition between the same old command that Jesus teaches fulfills the law and the prophets. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself and loving the world. So that helps us bring focus. That's the context. Love is what you set your desire on. Love is what has first place in your life. Love is what brightens your eyes and motivates your feet and makes your heart sing. It's the thing that you want most, that satisfies your soul. It's what Solomon tried to find love in Ecclesiastes, right? All that Hebel stuff he was trying to find, satisfaction or love for his soul. And what he discovered is the throne of your heart only seats one person. The throne of your heart, we could put it this way, is a one-butt seat. And you can't put more than one butt in that throne. There's only one thing. Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. Only one thing goes on that throne. That's what you love. That's the way this word is being used here. Whatever's in first place. Christians... Believers in Jesus Christ who've been saved by grace through faith and your sins have been forgiven. Believers who have known Jesus Christ through the ups and downs of life by walking with him through thick and thin. Believers who have overcome the evil one because Satan cannot go toe-to-toe with Jesus. Don't love the world. It's a straightforward, black-and-white command. Except, except, probably your instinct is to lawyer up at this point. Mine often is, right? Let's lawyer up a little bit. Get a lawyer in here. Let's get some fine print going about precisely what the world is or what, what do we mean by love? Let's start qualifying some things. Let's get a little, you know, provisios. Let's, let's maybe cast some reasonable doubt and make this fuzzy and gray. Get some escape clauses built in. Maybe a liability release form at some point would be helpful. What does, you know, love really mean? Because I have more than one child, right? I have five, and I love all of them. So can't I just love things equally? The world and God? Is everything in the world actually really bad? God did make it all. And isn't this just talking about, you know, don't love the world in general, or most of the time, or at least when you're in church on Sundays. So let's be the lawyer for a minute. Let's ask Jesus, how is it that I can please God? And Jesus answers the lawyer in the Gospel of Luke. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your life and all of your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And immediately the lawyer goes into lawyer mode and qualifies. Oh, yeah, okay, good. Who's my neighbor again? And Jesus' answer is what? It's the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. Who is your neighbor? Well, apparently, it's anybody who needs help. And the way you love your neighbor is you give until the need is gone. That's what this kind of love is talking about. The godless society that we live in, a realm that is opposed to God, does not love this way. It is simply our home in exile. But we are called to live very differently, with a wholehearted, selfless devotion to one thing only. That throne of your heart is a one-but seat. 
And it can only have one person sitting there. And it's either you or it's Christ. You only have two choices. I want you to look at verse 15. Following his command, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We're going to do just a little bit more Greek grammar this morning. And I apologize for those of us who like hard sciences. But for those of us who like grammar, here we go. This is called a plenary genitive in Greek. And that means it has more than one shade of meaning to it. Because love of the Father can mean one of two things, right? The love of the Father could be God's love for me or my love for God, right? My love for God, the love of the Father, or the Father's love that he gives to his people. The love. You see how it could go either way? It can mean one of those. Well, a plenary genitive actually takes shades of both. And it's saying something like this, I think. If the world is sitting on the throne of your heart and it has first place in life, then you do not have love for God, and he does not have love for you. I'm going to let that sink in for just a minute. If the world is what is sitting on the throne of your heart, then this text is saying, I think, then you do not love God, and he does not love you. At least in the way this text is using the word love. It's that simple. And it's that hard. Evidence inference. If you love the world, then the most likely explanation is you don't know God. You don't love him, and his love for Christ is not resident in you. So Christian, because this is speaking, I think, to Christians. Christian, you can't love the world or the stuff in it. It's part of the cost of discipleship. You can be the, king, the citizen of just one kingdom. You can have just one person on the throne of your heart. Jesus says you can serve one master. Now keep reading into verse 16. And we're going to find out what the real problem here is. Because another thing that we like to do is to say the problem is not in me, it's outside me. Right? It's the world. And we're going to find out that that's actually not the problem, even though the world has a very good marketing team to market the realm of darkness and death and sin. They do an excellent job at that. There's a reason, I think, in the comic Dilbert that the marketing department is a bunch of trolls, if you're in marketing. Sorry about that. But it's always amused me. So the the realm of darkness has a good marketing team, but what we find out is that's not really the problem. The problem's in me, not out there. The problem's the resonance that that stuff has in my heart, that I want to love it. Douglas O'Donnell calls it the holy, unholy trinity of temptation. The unholy trinity of temptation. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And that does not come from your father. It comes from the world. But the problem is that it resonates in here. And I want that on the throne, because I kind of like that. The desires of the flesh... That's what your body longs for. It's what satisfies you physically. Colossians 3 has a spelling out of this that helps. It's sexual immorality. Any kind of impurity. Lust. The desire for evil. Greed. The desire for stuff. In the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes has a whole book on this. 
What is first place in your heart? Is it Jesus Christ? Or is it the immorality that shows up on your computer screen? Or in your everyday life? Or is it in the greed that drives you to go do more and to get more? It could be something just as simple, frankly. The things that satisfy your, your body could be just as simple as, I love a good cup of coffee. Or it could be as depraved as pornography. Or it could be as consuming of your soul as materialism. It could be longing for, I just want one more Lego set, right? Just one more. If I could just get the Star Wars X-Wing Lego set, then my soul would be satisfied. Or it could be if I could just get one more look at that woman, then my soul will be satisfied. If I could just have one more session of gossip, if I could just get, if I could just get, if I could just have the desires of the flesh, what your body tells you it has to have. The desires of the eyes are different from the desires of the flesh, I think, or there wouldn't be two things here. There would just be one. And this appears to be a more spiritual than physical perception. I think it works together with verse 11. Those who hate their brother, verse 11 says, are blinded by the darkness. They can't see reality well. They don't recognize Jesus. They don't have life. And the desires of the eyes, I think, are a spiritual darkness and a spiritual blindness that relates to the garden. What happened in the fall in Genesis 3? What started that off? Eve did what she saw. This is a spiritual thing that's going on there, that that fruit was good for being wise. There was a decision going on inside of Eve of, I know what God's word says, and I've decided I'm going to be in charge, and I'm going to decide what is good, and then I'm going to live as I want to. And so I'm going to be on the throne, and God has to move over here, because it's just a one-spot throne. The desires of the eyes are different than what the body wants. The desires of the eyes are what your broken or bent soul wants or your will. Longing for forbidden fruit. The other man's wife. Your neighbor's house. Your sibling's toys. The clothes. The lifestyle. The happiness that I see comes from what the world's marketing team tells me makes life matter and makes life last on TV and online. So the desires of the flesh, it's what my body says it wants. The desires of the eyes, what my will or soul says it wants, opposed to and against God. And each of us has our own flavor and variety of secret desire for flesh and for eyes. Children, remember the context? Children, your sins have been forgiven. Fathers, you've known the Savior. Youngers, you've overcome the evil one. You need not do this. Do not love. And the pride and arrogance of life, I think, is illustrated well in James chapter 4. 
It brings fighting and division into the church in James 4 because basically this is summed up as an I want my way and I want my will and I want to win more than anything else. And it sort of ties up the rest of this in a bow. Right? I think of the words of the U2 song, give me what I want and no one gets hurt. Right? That's kind of that's what this is talking about, I think. Give me what I want and no one gets hurt. The pride of life. Right? And how often do we treat each other this way in our relationships? I'm going to get what I want. I have the arrogance and pride to say, my will, my way, I win, even if it's at your expense, which is directly opposite what we just read in the same old commandment just above the poem, isn't it? Love one another, Jesus says, as I have loved you. And that is a love that goes all the way to the cross to die for the sake of the beloved, to save them. You love like I've loved you. The pride of life is directly opposite of that. And this text says, do not love. Because verse 17, the world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's a text that's written to children who've been washed, to olders who are wise, and to youngers who are warriors. Why would you trade what you cannot lose? Eternal life in Christ for what you cannot keep. The things of the dark world that are passing away. It makes no sense. First John says, do not love. And this is one of the best ways that you can have assurance of your own salvation. By what this passage is aiming you at, which is obedience to the, the one who walks with God and keeps his commands. This is how we know. Don't trade what you cannot lose for what you cannot keep. A mentor of mine liked to say, and I've always found this helpful, that for the Christian, a step towards sin is a step toward insanity. A step toward sin is a step toward insanity. Because you're taking steps not to the right, the phrase that we use sometimes of growing and maturing in Christ, you're taking steps to the left. I want to go back into the darkness that I was saved from. I want to put something, I want to... to, Submit myself again to the sin that I've been freed from. I want to live in opposition to God, which is contrary to everything inside of me that is new creation in Christ. You can't live that way as a Christian and maintain sanity. So a step toward sin is a step toward insanity because you're living against the way that you actually really are inside. And this text also teaches the ob- the ob- the the converse, the opposite, is true. That the best way to have assurance is to do the will of God. Because then you'll have the power of Christ in everyday life. You will have, know that your sins are forgiven, and you will know him, and you will overcome the evil one. So that's your commission. It's just two parts. One that involves life, and one that involves death. And by the way, we're going to talk about this more in Christian formation today in a little while with the adult class. The first part is listen to the word of God and hear the gospel over and over and over and over. That brings life. And the second part I said is death. And I don't mean your death. I mean the death of the sin that you're wrestling with. Don't love the word. Listen to the word. Don't love the world. Listen to the word. Don't love the world. That's your commission from this text. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you that you have troubled yourself to write to us, your children, so that we might know that our sins have been forgiven for Jesus' sake. Father, thank you that if you have put among us mature people who have walked with Jesus and known him from the beginning, from whom we can learn to emulate and walk in our own lives. Thank you that you have put among us youngers who are energetic in their faith and abide in the word and are warriors to overcome the devil. Would that we would follow their example in mortifying and killing our sin. I pray that you would help us to love each other as Christ has loved us, and then to love you with all of our hearts, in all of our lives, in all of our everythingness. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.